The goosebumps on your arms begin to prickle. You sense at all times that somebody is watching. You hear the wind whisper into your ear. You're not quite sure if it's saying your name, but it's certainly speaking to you. You constantly look around. You don't know where the danger is coming from, but every part of your soul is telling you danger is nearby. That's when you hear it say your name. My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talked to Paul, a.k.a. Ampersand. A couple topics on the show are describing instead of telling, character arcs, and using senses. Overall, it was a really fun conversation, and I think there's a lot of great tips for learning to describe scenes in this episode. Don't forget, we do have a few more days left of our January design competition, so make sure you get your submissions in before the end of the month, and then we will be publishing the winners for that contest shortly in February. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. I have Paul, a.k.a. Ampersand, here. Welcome, Paul. Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, glad to have you. And Paul, why don't you give us uh, a little bit of information about yourself and how you got started in tabletop role-playing games? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Paul, aka Abbasan. Um, I'm from the UK, specifically the North, near Yorkshire. <clears throat> um, I've been playing, well, specifically Dungeon Mastering D&D for a little over eight years now. I actually got told I would be a fantastic dungeon master before I'd ever heard of D&D or dungeon mastering or anything. Um, my colleagues were talking about it, and I'd heard D&D as everybody else had heard it. It's this thing that, you know, for nerds and people in their mum's basement sort of thing, which it was even back then. And my colleague said to me, like, oh, Paul, you should, you know, you should be a dungeon master for us. And I'm like, that that's... That's weird. I don't know what a dungeon master is, but it sounds like something I don't <laughs> want to do for my colleagues. I, I was their boss at the time as well, so I'm like, that sounds awkward. Uh, but they explained it to me, said, oh, you know, it's D&D, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it's a role-playing game. It's this, it's that. And I was like, all right, I'll look into it, and I'll let you know. And so I did a bunch of research, and for whatever reason, I couldn't find anything on D&D. Like, specifically, I couldn't find character sheets, couldn't find the player's handbook. I don't know if I was just Googling the wrong stuff or what, but I just couldn't find anything. Um, so I was like, you know, fine, all right, I know the gist of it. I've seen some websites. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make my own system. And looking back, that was really optimistic. <laughs> um, I literally, I created uh, what I now know to be a point-buying system, but it wasn't your typical six categories that you get in D&D. It was r- completely random stuff that I just made up on the spot. I made up six characters, all with varying different levels of power. And there was no leveling system. That didn't happen. You could trade in experience points, like they were uh, inspiration points for like D&D 5e. That's what I called them. And you could trade them in to level up your abilities. I made one person the Avatar from, you know, Avatar Legend of Ang. That was it. It was just the Avatar. <laughs> one, one person was a like a werewolf that had the power to break the fourth wall and ask the DM questions specifically. There was about 11 of us 
me, myself, it was uh, my partner, my wife now, my partner at the time, and about nine other colleagues. I'd never done Dungeon Mastery before. We were all sat on the floor of my flat with one D20 between all of us. That was the only dice I had. So we were passing it around. I was just making stuff up on the spot. It was partly based on the Avatar, partly based on Harry Potter, partly based on the Avengers, partly based on Greek gods. It just random passions that I just p- plucked out of my brain. I think the most successful role of the night was done by my dog, who picked up the <laughs> D20 and almost refused to give it back. He did roll a natural 20, though. Um, and that was it. We did one session. They killed a bunch of spiders. One person got to about half health. That was the most serious it was. And it was an absolute fiasco. There was no consistency. It was a nightmare. Half of them have probably never played Dungeons and Dragons again, but I was hooked. I absolutely loved it. Um, about a year later, um, I moved to a different part of York and found a local like comic book store, so to speak. And I found out that they do Dungeons and Dragons night. So I remember that. Yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I did that. Oh, this is the thing that I was told about. So I went there as a player. Um, and I was a bard. Uh, I love the idea of being a bard. It's definitely what someone would describe me as in real life. His name was Bard Bard, but he always said it quickly. So it was Bard Bard, the bard. And he had to rhyme. He had a speech impediment. It was a curse put upon him. But I chose, this was of my own doing, that he had to rhyme in everything he said. It was an absolute <laughs> nightmare. I swear to God, I make things so much harder for myself than I ever need to when it comes to Dungeons & Dragons. So we had about five sessions. I was like, this is okay, but it's not as it's not as much fun as it was when I was DMing. And I couldn't really figure out why. And by like the fifth, the fourth, fifth session, I was getting bored of having to rhyme. So I said to the dungeon master uh, at the time, like, can we get this curse lifted? This is driving me insane. I can't keep this up. And then lockdown happened. And he, to this day, is still rhyming. And... <laughs> <laughs> I've just never been back since because we're still kind of in lockdown. So, yeah, my first character was good. My second character after that was a barbarian with the mind of a five-year-old girl. She was an experiment. So she acted like a five-year-old girl. And her rage was uh, basically a temper tantrum. So she didn't get her way even in social situations outside of combat. (laughs) I would just sometimes rage and just start throwing things. (laughs) And there was another much more experienced player at that table who's like sort of adopted me in character as my older sister. So she was the only one that could calm me down. It's kind of like if anyone's seen it, the Age of Ultron moment where Black Widow calms down the Hulk. It was kind of like that. And even then, by again, by the fourth session, I was like, this is I'm getting bored of this character. What what's wrong with me? Like I love DD, I love the idea of it, I love researching it. And I love creating characters. And my wife said, well, why don't you just go back to Dungeon Mastery? Like, you create the characters, you create loads, and you don't have to play the same character every time. Like, that sounds a really good idea, actually. So I did. I got a couple, uh, one new colleague. I'd changed jobs about seven times by then. A friend of ours that my wife used to live with, and my wife. And I did a Dungeon Mastering uh, game. This was fantastic. This is where I fell in love. I could create as many different characters I liked. I could create combat. I could create uh, different rules. I could create funny moments, meaningful moments, scary, horrifying moments. And that is where I fell in love with being a Dungeon Master and D&D altogether. So 
after and so now that you've kind of gone from the like a hundred percent homebrew and then you played in a game and now you're running again what system are, did you kind of fall on uh, as your system that you're running now um so at the moment um it's about to start up again i've got a couple of sessions a couple of different games that i'm dungeon mastering one is curse of Strahd. it's the first real time i've ever used a wizards of the coast um official guide I'm quite liking that. It's okay. I like the fact that I that all the names are prepared, all the NPCs are prepared. It saves me a lot of time. Most of the things that I have to think about throughout the week before you know the sessions is how are the NPCs going to react? Where are my players going next? But I'm also running, um, just as a home game, so to speak, a Legends of Rune Terror game, a D&D game. So, I don't know if you've heard of it, League of Legends, it's a uh, MOBA, fantastic game, been going on for 10 years, the lore in it is huge, it's got a massive world, there's about 10 cities, and all of all of my friends and I play it, and I love the lore of it so much that I created an entire D&D campaign around it, which is, if you haven't heard of League of Legends, it's like going, I like Pokemon, I'm going to create a D&D world around Pokemon. It's to that, that's how big the world is. Um, and that's all homebrew. I'm still using D&D 5e. They are now allowed to use stuff outside the, uh, inside the player's handbook. I'm not creating all the classes and races and everything ever again. That was a disaster. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I personally prefer homebrew. But I do know if I did it 100% homebrew, not you know in a, another universe, it would be very difficult. But I do personally prefer a lot more homebrew than I do official material, so to speak. Um, so I have I've have played League only a couple of times, but I actually really like the Legends of Runeterra card game. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've definitely gotten inspiration there for like monsters and stuff. Just and this, the art is just fantastic as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, just mm-hmm. looking at the cards and stuff for inspiration. Yeah. Absolutely. And when they released that game, it expanded the lore so much because in League of Legends, you've just got champions and that's it. And sometimes they have relationships with each other. Sometimes like a brother or a parents are mentioned slightly. But when Legends of Rune Terror got released, the world blew up in an amazing way. Suddenly armies were introduced, you know, sacrifices were introduced. So much was introduced with that game. I spent more time probably researching the lore than I did playing Legends of Rune Terror. Because, and I love that game. Uh, I used to play it a lot more than I do now. But yeah, I absolutely love the lore of all of it. Well, and it fits really well right into a fantasy. I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of got all all of your genres between your different regions. You've got, you know, a lot of like medieval, like sword, uh, yeah. swords and magic. And then you've also got like, some people have guns and there's pirates and, yeah. <laughs> and some of that yeah. stuff too. So yeah. it's, you kind of have a wide range mm-hmm. uh for adventures as well. Precisely. You've got like gods, um, you've got the creator of the universes in there. And like you said, it ranges from medieval medieval stuff where two cities are at war using swords and you know uh, machinery. And then in like Piltover, you've got people creating magical weapons and sniper rifles and all kinds of crazy stuff. And it like you said, it just lends itself so much to fantasy. You can pretty much be whatever you want to be in both League of Legends and D&D. So the crossover, if you know the lore well enough, is really quite simple. Uh, and you said that was, you were running that in 5th edition? 
Yes, I've only ever played D&D 5e. In February, somebody is doing a one-shot for me to learn Starfinder. But I will handle hearts. I've only played D&D 5e. I'm currently also planning in March uh, for a home game, a Mazes and Minotaur game. I'd be surprised if anyone's heard of it, but according to the website, it's the oldest TTRPG in history. And it's 100% just set in Greece. And it is sort of like D&D on easy mode. So every weapon does 1D, 1D6. All the characters level up um, slightly separately. All the gods are provided. Every character gets all the spells at level 1. And there's only six levels in the entire game. It, I fully encourage someone to look out for it if you like Greek myth. If you don't, I would probably avoid it, to be honest, because it probably won't be your thing. But uh, it's something that I am passionate about. I love the old gods of the Greek lore. Um, but yeah, that should be really exciting. That's something I'm learning. And like I said, I've got Starfinder in February, but I've only ever really played D&D 5e. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, I have not heard of that other one, the Mazes and Minotaurs. No, I hadn't until I googled Greek D&D, and then that's the first thing that came up. I'm like, yep, this is exactly what I needed. This is, <laughs> this is so much easier than doing the homebrew world thing again. So like, yeah, let's do this. And the players at the table, aside from one of them, have never played D&D anyway, so they don't have to unlearn anything. So it's like, yeah, this is D&D, sure. This is it. Play this. Uh, so what what was like your biggest takeaway uh, or or your biggest thing that you learned switching from being like a player and then coming back into running the games? Uh, you, I recommend that you do not underestimate how much more effort you put in compared to your to, compared to most players. I won't say all players. There's some players that are fantastic out there and do amazing backstory, take the notes every session. But if you're not playing with people who are basically inside the TTRPG community in the same way, you probably won't get back as much effort as you put in. Like when I was playing my first homebrew game with the the wife and a couple of friends, every week I would have to sit down with all of them and level up their characters, uh, tell them what abilities they had, and they would just forget about it. Once the session was over, that's it. But as a DM, you can't do that. If you're playing weekly sessions, you've either got to plan pretty far ahead, which is not always advisable, or really be able to sit down and think about it and really know what you're doing, because your players will catch you off guard, and that's the last thing you really want if you don't know you can handle it. Something else I've probably taken away is that words are amazing and should never be underestimated as a form of power, because you can make people feel anything. With the right words. I hadn't thought of that. Can you give us like an example? Yes. So. um, In my Curse of Strahd game. um, It's all about horror. And when I was researching. You know how to do a horror themed campaign. And scary and vampires and stuff. A lot of people. A lot of the research I found was D&D. Doesn't lend itself to horror. And I understand it's the points they were making. The idea was that. Your players are most often the most powerful thing in the the world that they're in. Because if they weren't, why are they doing the task and not somebody else? And if you're the most powerful thing, why should you be afraid? Like, there's nothing that should you know make you fearful. Right. But in Curse of Strahd, I came up with the idea of a dream demon. And this dream demon would attack the players, ironically, as they slept. And 
they would go from having a long rest to a short rest. So it's like, okay, I've got to come up with some nightmares. I'm going to make my players live out the nightmares. And there's not really a lot they're going to be able to do in these nightmares. So I used... I don't know a lot of words. My vocabulary is not good. But I know how to speak to really put across meaning and, in this case, fear. So instead of just saying your character is afraid, describe fear to them and make them feel that. So, for example, the goosebumps on your arms begin to prickle. You sense at all times that somebody is watching. You hear the wind whisper into your ear. You're not quite sure if it's saying your name, but it's certainly speaking to you. You constantly look around. You don't know where the danger is coming from, but every part of your soul is telling you danger is nearby. That's when you hear it say your name. So in that example, like not once did I use the word fear, you're not I didn't say you are afraid, but in theory, that should make your character more afraid because they everyone has felt that feeling before, or most people have. And that's what you want to tap into. Their past feelings to reminisce at the table. That yeah, that that is a really cool uh way to describe that and really all you're doing is like you said you're changing from telling them the emotion that their that their character would be experiencing and just switching to describing the symptoms of the of that emotion yeah yeah and it seems like uh, it seems like a much easier task when you phrase it in that way to just Mm -hmm. describe it than yeah you know, because if you would have told me to to do something like that, I, I probably wouldn't have had a great, you know, answer for how to make somebody feel that way. But mm-hmm. I really like that idea of just describing yeah. instead of telling. It really brings the player forward for, like, roleplay and interaction purposes as well. Because if you just tell a player at your table, oh, oh, act afraid, they're put on the spot, and not everyone really knows how to act or be afraid, you know? It's hard to... Remember the last time you were properly afraid, but if I tell you all the same emotions you felt the last time you were afraid, it just makes it easier on both you and the player. And I think it's a really fantastic technique. Yeah, I really like that. That I'm definitely stealing that. <laughs> You've mentioned that you do like a lot of homebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, do you tend to write a lot of extra homebrew stuff for your uh, players in your games? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I will... Um, really sit down with my players and talk to them about backstory and their origins and, you know, where they want the campaign to go because everyone will say it's collaborative storytelling and it's okay with me coming up with a story arc, but if it doesn't fit with what the players want, then it's it's me telling a book or reading a story. I want them to know, okay, at the start of this campaign, you're this person. By the end of it, you want to become this person. Like, how do you want to get from A to B? And my average session when I'm writing it up is about 1,500 words. I'm saying on average because some of my sessions are about a paragraph long and then the words ad-lib this bit. And it's because I don't know what my players are going to do. It's a waste of time me trying to guess. And so I'm just going to trust my ability to make it up on the spot. So far, it's never let me down. But it probably will one day. But yeah, absolutely. I love writing backstory. Especially for my homebrew universes. For Curse of Strahd, it's a bit harder. The backstory's already there. A lot of the information's already there. But yeah, absolutely. Fully, fully enjoy writing backstory for people. I really like the idea of um, sitting down with your players and talking about like the story arc that you want them mm-hmm. to... Or that they want to go through. Yeah. Um, 
that's something that I guess as a player, at least I've never, I've never done. And it is almost kind of like a, uh, like a secondary thought almost like I know that over the course of the game, my character may change or I may want them to change, but unless the DM is kind of, is, is collaborating with you on it, you don't necessarily know if that's something that you will get to experience within that campaign. Yeah. What I like to do is, as well, ask my players, okay, I want you to think of three things you're really good at or proud of as your character, and three things that make you vulnerable, so to speak. So a great example is one person picked, I'm incredibly friendly as one of their good things, obviously, and I have a fear of spiders as one of their bad things. Right? That's fantastic. You're incredibly friendly. That's role-play opportunity, to, opportunity for you. And you're afraid of spiders. That gives me something to work with to, um, you know, put you in the moment, so to speak. And I said to the specific player, like, okay, well, you're going to lose both of these things by the end of the arc. But you can't have a story arc and only have positive. That's, in my eyes, kind of boring. Like, oh, happy is a rainbow. Like, so I said to him, like, I'm going to give you an opportunity to get over your fear of spiders. But as the campaign goes on, you're going to meet more and more people who aren't giving you that friendliness back. And maybe it makes you a bit bitter. Maybe you're so friendly because you've not seen the real world horrors yet. And once you do, you might lose some of that friendliness. How do you feel about that? And he said, yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. We went with it. And uh, yeah, we role played it rather well. We didn't finish the campaign. He did get over his fear of spiders, though. So uh, yeah, all in all, I think if you're going to have negatives and positives, maybe try and like, lose one of each. Because I think that's a great way. People change so much over time. It would absolutely make sense for a friendly character to become less friendly if every NPC they meet, they tries to kill them. I hadn't thought about the, um, like you mentioned, the positive things changing. Because, yeah, just like you said, a character arc isn't always positive in every aspect. Mm -hmm. So having some positives and some negatives and then effectively saying, okay, we're just going to get rid of these by the end of it. And then that gives you some guidance as to how are you, or, you know, what, what encounters and things are you going to add in Mm -hmm. during the course of the campaign to, to make those things happen. Yeah, absolutely. So does that influence um, like how you build out encounters for a session or like um, I, I could see if you do like random encounters, you would almost somewhat replace like a random encounter with an encounter that is kind of tailored towards one of your character's arcs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we'll take the example of that player again. Um, sometimes too friendly and afraid of spiders. So if I was to do a random encounter, I might include spiders in that particular session and give this person an opportunity to role play, especially if they've not done anything for a while or you know the story hasn't been focused on them too much. But at the same time, if they met an NPC... It was uh, very smart in the sense of he could recognize vulnerable people. He might see this uh, player and go, okay, that person's overly friendly. They're very trusting in me. And even though I'm going to you know, uh, betray him, I reckon he's an easy mark, so to speak. So yeah, absolutely. Stuff like that completely changes or I adapt to it when meeting encounters. Uh, I recognize that someone's got a vulnerable trait. And people in the world that I create will also recognize that sometimes. Otherwise, 
it, they're not real people. You're not creating real NPCs. You're just creating stat blocks for people to play with. And that's not as as good of world building as I believe I can do. Um, does having all of those, maybe you kind of answer that, but having all of those um, those traits and knowing where you want your characters to go, that that definitely helps to build uh, or to plan your sessions, right? Oh yeah, definitely. And if you know, a few sessions in or halfway through the campaign, I'll um, I'll have what's called a, a session zero point five, which is incredibly misleading in its name, but it's basically another session zero that just says, "How's everyone feeling? You okay with this campaign? You okay with the way it's going? Is there any part of the story arc that we spoke about or things that we spoke about in session zero that you want to change?" And if he says, uh, "Yeah, I." You know, I, I feel like I'm becoming less friendly. This is as least friendly as I'm comfortable being. I no longer want, you know, obstacles like that. You know, I'm no longer as trusting as I was at the start. But, okay, change your character sheet. I'll keep that in mind and we'll move forward. We'll carry on doing stuff and I'll find other ways to bring you into the role-playing aspect of the game. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, do you ever let your characters... Um or your players, I guess I should say, switch, like completely switch their characters at a time like that? Like if they just... Never, are... never at a time like that. Never halfway through the campaign. I think I've done it once or twice, and I think I'd probably only let it be as late as uh, like the fourth session, or I should say actually probably level four or five for the characters, or four or five levels in, because I don't always start at level one. Uh, but halfway through the campaign, I probably wouldn't. If they really wanted to play a different character and said, well, I just don't want to play then, I'm like, all right, we'll find a way for your character to die and you can come back as someone else. But they'd have to give me some really good reasons because most reasons I feel I could work around. For example, if it's like, I don't feel like I'm powerful enough. Right? Well, okay, here's some examples of where you can use your power. Here's some scenarios where you are the main focus. Here's some scenarios where only your abilities can get you out of this mess. And if I'm not doing that enough anyway, that's a comment on my ability to be a dungeon master rather than the player style that they've chosen. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And and you're willing to and open to working with the players to make sure that those things are met with yeah, their current absolutely. character. So um, hopefully it's less of an issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I think now might be a good time to transition over to some of the projects that you're working on. Do you want to tell us about those? Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. So my main things that I work on for the TTRPG community is short graphic videos for your online content. So whether that's logo reveals, that's uh, opening titles for your streams, whether that's Kickstarters, Twitch trailers, anything where you feel an introduction is needed, contact me at d 20 and I'll work with you. I've created stuff for DMDM underscore studios, I've created stuff for Lost Haven Art. I'm one DM to another. I've recently finished a project with. I love creating videos that fit your branding. So I definitely work on that. I'm about to actually, this weekend, uh, as of recording, I'm about to restart our Curse of Strahd session. We are, I think, four sessions in, and they've just met Strahd at the end of their last session. So they are waking up, meeting... Strahd von Jorovic himself. And we are all very excited to get that back on. We can find that at DMDM underscore studios Twitch channel. 
You should really shorten that so it's easier to say. Uh, like I've said in, I think, March, I think I'm going to be doing a, what I'm calling a content creation collaborative storytelling, where 100% of it is homebrewed. So magic items, races, monsters, NPCs, all of it is going to be homebrewed. So I've got, I've got magical items from Abyssal Brews who have kindly provided their magical items um, on their Patreon. So I'm using that. We've got someone who's been doing the New Year New NPC Challenge, who is providing 31, I presume, different NPCs, and I'm going to be using them throughout the entire campaign. Uh, A good friend of mine, fellow UK citizen Lost Haven Art, is providing all the monsters from his Monstober um, sessions that he did back in October. And... Somebody else, I won't lie, I haven't got them yet, but somebody will be providing maps for us. If anyone out there wants to contribute their maps, feel free. And it's my job to squish all of these collaborative things into a story and see how wild it gets. But that's that's going to be starting in March. I need some time to prep it. And I'm both really scared and so excited for that. It's going to be fantastic. Whatever I come up with, I'm sure will be entertaining even if it's not particularly good. But it will be entertaining, so come check that out. <laughs> so the end the end kind of product, is it gonna be like a like a little module or what kind of what um, are you so building it's out? Be, it's gonna be a, a actual play stream. So you can come check it out. I would love to make it a module, but I can't use everybody else's work into one module and then charge people for it. If it goes well and I create some form of story, I could potentially create a design idea about how to do this in the future for different things, and maybe just write a module about how to DM a 100% homebrew campaign, because it's something I've got a lot of experience in. Maybe other people would be interested in it, but it's definitely something I could be interested or persuaded to do yeah, that might be more accurate. That's awesome. It does, it does sound both scary and like a lot of fun at the same time. Definitely. Do you do much with your, your YouTube channel? Um, I don't yet, but I have been contacted by a couple of creators who want to work with me on some videos about creating homebrew content and how, not so much creating the homebrew content, but how to approach it. And I might just do a series on using your words, you know, how to use words to portray emotion like uh, I did earlier with the fear and how to really get your players involved into the role-playing experience, because that's what it's all about, really. Especially in D&D 5e, it's really hard to make combat very interesting. So 90% of what you're doing that's memorable is the role-playing. You know, if you think of your favourite podcast or your favourite moment in your last game, it's rarely the fighting part of it. It's always this role-playing moment. It's always this NPC and a certain thing that he said. You know, if you think of any in-jokes for your campaign, it's always a specific line or a specific way someone does something. It's so infrequently the, oh, I stabbed him with my sword six times, wasn't that exciting. No, you make good points. It makes me think back to previous campaigns that I've played in. And yeah, a lot of the, um, you know, some of the things may have been during combat, but it wasn't the it wasn't necessarily the specific like damage that was rolled or whatever. Yeah. It's the the outcome of that event and mm-hmm. and that changed the story. So yeah, that's some good points. I do think that uh, some type of a series on 
the descriptions, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, mm-hmm. the fear um, would be very valuable because uh, that's probably the best that I have heard fear described thus far. Um, okay. I haven't played in a lot of horror games, so that may mm-hmm. also be part of it, but um, that definitely yeah. is a good skill for DMs to learn and to master. Absolutely. I think if a DM can really lean into his or her or their storytelling capabilities, I think you've got probably got about 80% of the idea of a dungeon master already down. Everything else is learnable, or you can look it up in the dungeon master's guide or whatever book you've got. But if you learn how to really tell a story and bring all the different aspects into that one story and make it a fantastic experience for your players, absolutely, you've got DMing down, you're already there. Which may be what they said meant eight years ago when they said, I could be a great dungeon master, I'm a great storyteller, I take pride in that. You don't even need the largest vocabulary, I certainly do not have it. I will continuously ask my wife what this word means or what's another word for this. Um, but yeah, absolutely, learn how to tell a story, get your players and your audience to feel something. You've already got 90% of the job down. Is there something that you struggle with as a DM? I think as a DM, I'm, the thing I most struggle with, and it's possibly because I find it boring to try and get better at, is probably combat. Like I mentioned, I just think D&D 5e combat takes a lot of effort to make interesting. And most of the time when you do make it interesting, you're not really making combat interesting. You're providing alternate routes to achieve the goal outside of combat, or certainly I am. My favourite memory of a combat being really good is a few players that were against a vampire, basically. Uh, It was a vampire, head of a vampire spawn clan. They went in, and every single player had dark vision, but I made it that the vampire didn't know that, because why would he? He doesn't care what a cleric, a warlock, and God knows what else it was at the time what they could see or not see. So the vampire tried to use darkness as an ally, very Batman-like. And so he blew out all the candles, and it was dark. Complete pitch back. Now the vampire could see, he knew that. And all my three players could see, but the vampire didn't know that. So the vampire is trying to sneak around, like, up the walls, <laughs> up the ceiling, and he thinks he's being so clever, he's got a smirk on his face, because, ha-ha, I'm going to sneak up on these players from behind. And my three players are just standing there watching him crawl up the wall like, you right, bud? You okay up there? <laughs> Gonna cast Eldritch Blast now, if that's okay. <laughs> like, no, you cannot see me. I'm invisible to you. What? Like, okay. Eldritch Blast, please. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, that to me was the most I've And I will always provide, and I explain this in every session zero, I was pretty much always to provide a non- fighting resolution to the obstacle that's in that way. Sometimes that won't. Sometimes, you know, there's it's, you just kind of fight the guy. Sorry, you're fighting. This is a fight. And sometimes my players will start fights. I'm like, well, yeah, you've just called his mother, you know, um, a demigorgon or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> and like, yeah, he's not going to take kindly to that. It's like, well, you said there would be a way around fighting. Like, not if you insult the guy's mother, there isn't. No. <laughs> Like, now he's going to draw his sword. He's the captain of the guard. He can't just let you talk to him like that. Um, But yeah, I think for me, the biggest struggle is to make combat interesting. But aside from that, 
Uh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Sometimes I struggle with ad-libbing, but it's rare. And I definitely struggle with remembering what I ad-libbed the day before or the session before. So if any of my players ever bothered to take notes, um, I would probably be in a lot more trouble. But <laughs> I can always bet on it. And they're like, yeah, that was the person's name. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Why not? He's called Dave now. <laughs> um, the, so the combat thing, does that... So fifth edition, especially, like a lot of abilities are based around combat. So does that, how does that kind of impact with your like DMing style, knowing that a lot of things are are centered around combat? So I am always completely honest at session zero and say I'm not great at combat, and say depending on the campaign, the ratio of combat to role playing that I expect this com- uh, campaign to have. Because some players love the combat. Some players are like, yeah, I want to fight every session. Let's stab people. Cool. And I'll be honest with you, those players probably won't enjoy being at my table. They're welcome to it. And there will always be combat somewhere. Normally once every two to three sessions. But it's not what I'm about. So in terms of how I use the D5E, all I basically try and do is allow them to use their combative skills in non-combat scenarios. So, for example, in my Terra game, for whatever reason, there was a burrito eating contest. There's a lot of lead up to it, but it's basically a burrito eating contest. And it's the cleric who has been put forward by his friends, quotation marks, to eat the spiciest burrito you have ever known to man. This thing is going to absolutely destroy his uh, innards, basically. And he was kind of like, can I use a spell on this burrito? So what do you mean? Like, can I use chill touch on this burrito <laughs> secretly? I'm like, uh, I mean, yeah, because I can't really think of a reason why you can't. Like, well, yeah, you, you know, it's your character. Do what you like. You can use chill touch on this burrito. And so he did it. And he said, you know, kind of do it subtly. So the crowd that was watching this, you know, burrito eating contest uh, didn't notice. Like, yeah, roll for stealth. I did like an 18. I was like, yeah, sure. Chill touch. That'll be fine. So we chill touched it. It was no longer the spiciest burrito. And he ate it. And the crowd loved it. And the entire you know, squad, the, the group that was in the town as my players, uh, got loads of free stuff and cheaper stuff because they were clever enough to you know, find a loophole in this burrito eating, comp- eating contest. Sorry. And yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. Very memorable moment. It backfired later on when Chill Touch ran out and it was still in his stomach. But <laughs> at the time, he didn't know that. So I was kind of, that was kind of petty of me, actually, because I was kind of annoyed that he found a way around the rules. And so I was like, well, Chill Touch lasts however many seconds it lasts or minutes it lasts. And it's still in your innards when it runs out. So you're going to feel it very quickly, buddy. And truth be told, I probably could have let him get away with it. It was a fantastic way to um, roleplay. I thought, yeah, this will be funnier. <laughs> well, props to you for letting him come up with a creative solution to the mm-hmm. uh, to that. I guess one of my things that I wish that D&D had a little bit more of was like out-of-combat abilities and stuff. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Just if, everything... you don't, if you don't have good charisma... That's it. You're not really doing much outside of combat. It's like, it's like okay, so wisdom and intelligence a little bit, 
But it is all down to your charisma score. And some of the classes and races just dump it. And it is so hard to do anything once you have a low charisma score that's non-combative. Especially for DMs who don't really know how to use wisdom or intelligence outside of combat, so to speak. I think you're absolutely right. D&D definitely needs more non-combat skill sets and stats, basically. Stats and even even just abilities and stuff, because like it feels like ninety percent of the uh, like class features and stuff are always like you know you do extra damage or you can do this other yeah. thing. And I mean it's all heavily combat focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love combat uh, and I like to optimize characters and stuff. But then yeah, you do it does feel like you lose out on some of those other you know role playing opportunities mm-hmm. uh, because you just don't have. You just don't have tools to to interact with the game in that way as yeah. much. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, were there more things that you wanted to mention about the projects that you're working on? Well, the projects, uh, not so much. As soon as I get more info about them, you can definitely find them on um, the updates on my Twitter. But I do want to give some Dungeon Masters some advice, if that's okay. Yeah, that's perfect. Specifically around, uh, I'll keep mentioning it, and I will, because I'm proud of my ability to do it. Using your words uh, to sell your scenario. This is especially important if you're doing theatre of the mind. Use your players' and characters' senses, and use all of them. Do not just describe what they see and what they hear. What can they smell? What can they feel? You know, what can they taste? Um, one of my favorite scenes to ever describe is a beach. What do you, you know, what do these five senses do on a beach? What can you see? You can see the sand. You can see the sunset. You might be able to see some cliffs. Awesome. Okay, you've described a beach. What can you hear? Uh, seagulls, the wind, the ocean crashing against the waves. And for some people, that might be enough. But you've got three other senses. You've only used forty percent of the things that you can, you know physically feel, so to speak, what can you smell? Does it smell salty? Has someone been eating some fish and chips nearby? Can you smell the ocean itself? What can you taste? Is there an air of saltiness in the air? You know, has there been a bloody battle? Can you feel the death hanging in the air? Can you smell the blood that has been soaked into the sands of the beach? And there's just so... There's more senses than people remember most times when describing something because you don't often think about things you taste or smell they're just there and then they're not so to speak but it's often said that the the smell the sense of smell is the best for react um what did they say they like reenacting a memory if you oh. smell fish and chips you will instantly remember the last time you were on holiday you know if you smell uh, let's say, a dead body. You'll instantly remember the last time you saw a dead body. Bad example, but you get the idea. Smell will trigger the memory part of your brain a lot more than the other senses for some reason. I don't know why, but scientifically it does. And I fully suggest taking using that to your advantage. Remind people what the last thing they smelled was. Yeah, those are some good tips. Um, and even for me, like if I'm prepping a certain area or something, I like to just kind of take like a couple of notes of like all of the senses, like you said, like, okay, here, what's like one thing that I can describe for this area that hits all of the senses? Um, Because yeah, it does really help set the scene a lot better. Mm -hmm. 
Um, do you have a favorite uh, encounter or NPC that you've used? Um, so NPC, absolutely. Um, his, he is effectively a carriage driver. I want to say his name is something really mundane, like Jeff. But I think I might change it, change his name every time I use him. Because I use him in almost all of my campaigns. He's the same guy, effectively. He's got quite a thick Scottish accent, just because. Uh, his name does change, but he's a cabbage driver. He was in Curse of Strahd. He takes players to um, Barovia for the first time. And he gets lost inside Barovia. And now they've lost Jeff. So they've got to find him as an extra quest. He was in all of my homebrew campaigns. He He's basically the bus driver. In effect of, if I need my players to travel anywhere, they call on Jeff and Jeff takes them. And he's got two children. He's got a wife. He doesn't get to see them often because he's always on the road. And he's got quite an extensive backstory at this time. And I love Jeff. I think he's a fantastic NPC. And I will probably continue to use him in every campaign I create. Even in ones where there's no carriages. Even in ones where he's, his job is pointless and he's been made redundant. Jeff will still be there. <laughs> uh, the the common thread between all of uh, yeah. your universes. Precisely. It's actually bigger than the MCU. It's just Jeff is always there. Um, uh, so we, we talked about uh, having character arcs uh, mm-hmm. for your players. Do you have, like, when you run a campaign... Um, I guess I'm thinking more so like a homebrew campaign. Do you mm-hmm. like to have a like definitive end to the campaign? I like to have a BBEG in every campaign. He doesn't always, or they don't always appear at the start, and they're not always impacting the world from the get-go. But I always have an idea of where this campaign is going, and the final goal that my players need to achieve and at that point, I'll go, I've got nothing else for you. If you want to retire your character, you can. If you want to reinvest them into another campaign, that's absolutely fine. But uh, yeah, quite often, especially in my homebrew, I will have some final obstacle that they need to overcome. I don't want to go into too much details about what ones I have planned for my current campaigns, because my players uh, will probably be listening to this at some point. But yeah, absolutely. I think for me, having what can be described as a beginning, a middle, and an end really helps me in both planning stages, in session zero, in character arcs, like I've mentioned. And it sort of funnels my players and helps me as a dungeon master as well keep on track to where I think my players should be going. I'm all for, you know, not railroading and adapting on the fly, but. For me personally, yeah, there should be always a final goal, whether that's defeating a person, defeating an entire army, rescuing a city. It could be that the final goal only appears five sessions before the end, but for me, yeah, always should be a final goal. Um, when when I, does it stop? I'll be DMing for the next 20 years, and I, I'm getting old as it is. I, I don't think I could do this for another 20 years. <laughs> Um, have you had characters uh, bring uh, existing character over into a new campaign? Sort of, but not from my campaign to my campaign, so to speak. It was a character that he started with somebody somewhere else with another DM. The sessions had fizzled out or he'd left for whatever reason. And he said, it's a level five character. 
I really liked him. Can I use him? I'm like, well, yeah, I see no reason why not. All the other players were level five. It was fine. And I said, do you have any, you know, memorable moments from the previous campaign still, even though, you know, it was only level five? And he said, yeah, he did this and that and this and that. And I went, okay, well, that's your origin story then. We don't really need to come up with a backstory. That's how you got to level five. That's the experiences you have. And he managed to use it. I think we got up him up to level 15 eventually. Um, and yeah, it was absolutely. Bring your characters along. I don't know if I'd ever get someone to do it from my campaign to my campaign. Because most of my campaigns end at level 15 to 20. And I wouldn't want to start another full campaign at that level. Maybe a one-shot. I could see myself asking characters to come back for a one-shot. That would work. But probably not for another full campaign. Sure. Yeah, if you're doing a, a like a level reset and you're going back yeah. down towards the bottom, then it doesn't make as much sense. Mm-hmm. All right. And I got one more question for you, and then we can mm-hmm. kind of wrap up. If you could have any role-playing book created, uh, you could put anything in a book, uh, what, what would you put into an RPG book? Mm, great question. Anything. Uh, no limits, no nothing. Nope. It could be, so, yeah, it could be anything. I, I would personally put into a role-playing book, and it may already exist somewhere or somebody's homebrewed it for me, I would put the entire 15 series of Supernatural from a level 1 character to a level 15. And I think, for me, that would be fantastic. I've tried to watch all 15 episodes, uh, seasons of Supernatural. I think I'm on season 8. There's a lot of episodes. And I think it's got enough lore that you could probably get away with it. I would normally say League of Legends, because I think that would be amazing. But I'm already doing it. So if I get to pick something else that I'm not doing, it would save me time. I think, yeah, Supernatural. That's what I'm picking so just or like the a f- Avengers or Marvel. Oh, oh, Marvel might be a good idea. I so go just with like Marvel. A- I'm going to change my idea to Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> so just like a big campaign, like source book. Yeah, got absolutely. Just everything that you need. There's like five different books of just the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I'd be happy with that. I'd buy all five, and I'd spend the next ten years DMing it. Yeah, I'd love it. I know there are some superhero games. I Mm-hmm. I don't know if there is an official Marvel one or not. You could probably change their names. There's, probably, there's always overlaps in superpowers, so you could probably happily change their names and make it Iron Man, you know, Captain America, the lot. So yeah, I can imagine so. Awesome. Well, fantastic book idea. Uh, <laughs> and you, you kind of gave me two there, so that's perfect. I, I'm cheating. It's fine. And, and with that, uh, why don't you tell us where we can find you online? Absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter at ampersand D20. That is ampersand letter D number 20. And you can find me streaming at the moment every other Saturday, starting this Saturday on the 22nd of January over at DMDM underscore studios, where I will be streaming Curse of Strahd every other Saturday, like I mentioned. And keep an eye out, because in March, I will be streaming on my own channel once I create it a content collaboration and i'm super excited for that it's going to be absolutely hell and probably the worst thing i ever do so definitely keep an eye out (laughs) well awesome paul it was a blast talking to you absolutely thank you very much for having me it's been wonderful 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.